And you, that's y'all, y'all, all of you, were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all, previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, including indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our wrongdoings made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever and ever. I hope you believe that. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you'd give us the faith to believe that your word endures forever that we might take it to heart, that we might not, as is so evident in our lives, as we hear it propounded and then we stand up and go away and it leaves us unchanged. May that not happen tonight as it has happened in the past. May we truly be changed. May we truly, in the days to come, Love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Father, as I've just said, we, we'd be remiss not to mention Pastor Morris. We pray for him as he concludes his labors in Honduras and will be traveling back tomorrow for a safe journey, we ask. And for the labors he's dispensed there to be used in the coming days and weeks and months and years to the glory of your name. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is Reformation weekend, and we would uh, we'd be, be most uh, blessed if we would remember the words preached this morning concerning the scriptures and the absolute uh, authority and necessity and perspicuity and sufficiency of the scriptures. But likewise, we, we should dwell much about the grace of God. In our day, in our time, even in churches, even in, in churches that are relatively well taught, there's a, there's a creeping anthropocentrism Children, that's your big word for the week. 
Your parents will help you work on that. Anthropocentrism just means there's a, there's a creeping man-centeredness that we, we're, we're more man-centered than we are theocentric or God-centered. I just posted yesterday on my LinkedIn account a quote from John Calvin. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, so I suspect there won't be as many observers of it as there are on those short quotes. But uh, it's about this very thing. He says that the reason we, we live lives that are so accommodating to sin in the world is because we don't keep God in focus. We don't keep our eyes fixed on the holy, 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 the righteous one. And when we let holiness slip out of our sight, then unholiness is more easily creeping in upon us. He says it more eloquently and more 16th century-ish than I just said it, but that's a paraphrase for you. Now this, this anthropocentrism that the church suffers under had a great champion in the 19th century and his name was Charles and as he preferred his full name to be said, I'll say it, Charles Grandison Finney and he had Grandison ideas about himself. Let me read you a quote because he was the, the, the kingpin, he was the leader of what's sometimes called the second great awakening in the United States. I don't give it that title because I don't think it was awakening or great. But this single quote epitomizes his psychology. Now, if you wonder why I'm not using the word theology, is because he really didn't have a theology. His whole work, his, his lectures on theology and his lectures on revival are all just a psychology of the day. Here's what he said. That men should have regarded conversion as a work performed exclusively by God is surprising. And he goes on to say something like this. No, the work of conversion is, is, is owing to the, the work of the minister. And it's owing, it's owing to the, the message that the minister preaches. Does he get it right? Does he say it the right way? Does he appeal to the people in the right way? Um, and then he says, and of course, it's ultimately owing to the sinner. He's able to believe. He just needs to. And then he sort of cavalierly throws in, but of course, God must be part of this. That way God gets a little glory, I guess, in Finney's psychology. But Finney was not the first. I mean, it, it finds its, its greatest example, perhaps. Finney was the great popularizer of it and the, the one that took it to some rabid extremes, but Augustine had to deal with this in his day with Pelagius. As I've often said, if you get Genesis chapter three wrong, you'll get everything else wrong. You certainly will get the doctrine of salvation wrong. If you don't know what sin is and how bad sin is and what sin does to you and what sin left you dead as a dog in your sins, then you won't have a good view of salvation. You'll have some sort of man-centered salvation view. And sadly, most of you 
have many friends that have some sort of synergistic view of salvation, that it's cooperative, right? Well, God's done his part. He's voted for you. Satan's voted against you. Now you've got to cast the deciding vote because after all, a majority wins, right? And if that's the way you come to Christ, then you haven't come to Christ. The picture of the Bible is not God holding out his hand and begging you and waiting for you to reach up if you can, which you can't, and take hold. It's God reaching down and cuddling you up in his arms and taking you to the cross and, and giving you a new heart and saving you from your sins and setting you on the right path. It's all of God or it's not at all. Grace is God's actively dispensing his unmerited favor on sinners with the design to save them out of their sin and their sins and bring glory to his name alone. That's grace. Anything less is works. And works is a damning heresy. Paul says so in Galatians 1. He says it's another gospel altogether. It's a heterodoxy. It's a false doctrine. So he calls the Galatians back to Christ, back to the cross. Well, that's what I want to do tonight. There's two simple points in this passage, and we're going to look at the passage. We're also going to look at a, a number of, of other passages that filter in and out of this, this ten verses that we've read already. The first main point is, there you see in your outline, God must be the sole actor on the stage of salvation. Why must God be the sole actor on the stage of salvation? Well, Paul tells us, you were dead in your offenses and sins. Now, he's talking to the church. You say, yeah, it says you were dead. So they, they must have woken up. They must have awakened. They must have, they must have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They must have kicked the door off the coffin. They must have. No, he goes on. He says, you were dead in your offenses in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working, the sun. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. That's who we are by nature. Inherently, David said that I was conceived from my mother's womb. I was conceived in sin. He sinned because he was sinful. He didn't become sinful because he sinned. And that's an important distinction. You have many evangelical friends who hold a position opposing the Bible. No, no, you become sinful when you sin. I heard a sermon this past week. The sermon was about children who die while they're still innocent, having never sinned. What happens to them? 
Well, first of all, you already know what's wrong with that opening statement. He had never read Psalm 51, apparently, and he's a well-known, well-published, popular, famous, international preacher, television, radio, and live and in person from Radio City Hall. Um, there's a problem with that, isn't there? We were just talking about this this morning in the new members class. One of the, one of the young mothers said, you know, I'm sure, by example, I showed my children sin, but I never taught them how to sin. I didn't have to. And every parent in here can testify to that. You don't have to teach babies how to sin. As beautiful and wonderful, the most wonderful granddaughter in the world, Rosie's the second, second runner there, but Evie, oh goodness, sometimes in that cute little face, I see sin just oozing. And I know that my wonderful son-in-law and my more wonderful daughter, they've not taught her to sin. They're trying to correct her from what's inherent, what's in, in the very, in the midst of her heart. Dr. Gerstner there's that wonderful story of him going to a church one Sunday, and they'd ask him if he'd do a baptism service while he was there. He said, of course I will. He got there, and on the, on the Lord's table down here, they had, they had placed a white rose. And he asked, what's the white rose about? He said, well, it's for the baby, the perfect little baby, the innocent little baby. And he said, why is it not a black rose? You get the point, I hope. That's what Paul is trying to establish right off the bat is that's who we were. And if you're not in Christ Jesus, that's who you are. Look at the description that Paul has for you. If you're rejecting Christ, if you're not trusting Christ, if you're not resting in Christ, if you're not possessing faith in Christ, he says that, that you, you're walking in the world. You're part of the world. You're, you're, you're following Satan, the prince and power of the air. Are you listening? If you're not following Christ, you're following Satan. There's no middle ground here. There's nothing in between. You follow Jesus or you follow Satan, period. Read Lewis, the screw tape letters. And see if you like the idea of following Satan. Look how he goes on. According to the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. You're, you're described as a son of disobedience. Disobedience is, according to the Bible, sin. Sin, defined by the Bible in 1 John, is lawlessness. You're living against God. Among them, we too all previously lived. Look how it says, you're living in the lust of your flesh. You're, you're indulging your flesh and your mind. You're a child of wrath. In other words, you die in the state you're in, not trusting Christ, not possessing saving faith. You 
will die and go to hell because that's what you deserve. That's who you are. You're a child of wrath. God will dispense it upon you. That's the reason God must be the sole actor in salvation is because we're dead. Dead men don't walk. Dead men don't, don't ask for help. I've done a number of funerals. I'm sure my friend Ron Kamiga has too. And I've never once seen a corpse move one inch of its body, speak one utterance, move the lid on that casket or come out of it because it's dead. It can't do anything. It's not just that it won't do anything. It can't do anything. That's the nature of something that's dead. It can't. It has no power within itself to do anything. Well, Paul must have been speaking spiritually. I don't care. Spiritually or physically, dead is dead, y'all. But let me ask you this. Which is worse, spiritual deadness or physical deadness? Now, if we were a Holy Ghost-filled Pentecostal pew-jumping church, you'd all have been answering me right then. The answer is, Spiritual death is worse because many people in the history of the world have died physical deaths and they're more alive now in the presence of the Savior by grace through faith alone than they were on this earth in their physical bodies. Spiritual death is eternal. For those who are not in Christ, it's soul damning to be spiritually dead. So which is worse, spiritual death or physical death? Spiritual death. So you have no argument against Paul or against God here. You have to accept it or else you reject the doctrine of salvation as it's presented in the Bible. God must be the sole actor Second point is, God is the sole actor. Not only must he be, but he is the sole actor. We see it in a nutshell right there in verse 4. After the description of death, spiritual death, verse 4 says, but God. Two of Paul's favorite couplings. In Christ, in him, with him, but God. Those are among his favorite two words. But God, great setting the distinction here in Paul's mind. He's, he's using the adversative. He's contrasting death and now life. Death is inherent to man. That's the problem with an anthropocentric church, an anthropocentric gospel, an anthropocentric uh, approach to all of life is it depends on man. And we see the problem with that in those first three verses. 
And then in verse 4, God, God makes the, the contrast. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, past, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings. Isn't that amazing? He loved us even when we were dead in our wrongdoings. Ephesians 1, though, trumps that one. He loved us not just when we were dead in our wrongdoings, but he loved us before the foundation of the world. He loved us eternally, not just in our temporal mess that we're in as dead people. He loved us even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. Who made us alive with Christ? Well, I, I came to Christ. No, you didn't. Christ came to you. And God made us alive in Christ. Why does he say made us alive? Because we were dead. The contrast again is between death and life. With Christ, we're made alive. By grace, you have been saved. There's the emphasis. And our English translations throw it in a parenthetical statement to draw attention to it because that's what Paul's doing. He's drawing attention. This is grace at work, y'all. That's what grace is, is God doing it. Do you see it? It's just clear as it can be. God does it. Oh, by the way, Paul says, that's called grace. By grace, you have been saved. That's what we're saying when we say God did it. That's what we mean when we say grace did it is God did it. It's synonymous. It's interchangeable, Paul says. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him. We're not saved to stay where we are. We're saved to be taken out of our sin, raised up from our sin, to be made better than others, as Spurgeon said. I'll remind you of that wonderful quote. Some of you have been around the whole time I've been around, 15 long years for some of you, 16 or 15 short years for some of us. The grace that doesn't save a man, he says, and make him better than others is a worthless counterfeit. And of course he draws that from my favorite little short verse, Matthew 1.21. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You notice Paul doesn't say anything that would suggest or give you grounds to say that Jesus Christ's death on the cross made salvation possible. Everything being said here is that God saves, period. He doesn't make it possible. It's not a potentiality. It's a done deal. He did it. You say, but we have to believe. Yeah, and he did that too. We'll get to that in a moment. He gives us the faith. And he gives us that divine energy. Aristotle talked about this eternal energy. The great theologians through the centuries have, have played on that and, and said, well, what Aristotle didn't know was that that eternal energy is divine energy. And they talk much about divine energy. I just read that in Calvin yesterday. This divine energy that's at work in God's people, in God's church, 
and said, work in our salvation. This divine movement of God that changes us. Jesus describes it as the Holy Spirit who comes and he goes, he moves, and we can't see him. We can't tell where he is, when he is, but we see the results of it. There's that divine energy at work as God works out his salvation for his people in his time according to his design. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. Our position has been altered. It's been changed. We're no longer earthlings per se. We're now heavenly beings. That's the reason as we get older and we come, become more in tune with our fragility, with our frailness, with our mortality, with our temporariness, we long more and more to be with Christ. That's the reason you hear, as I heard with my dad and I heard with my mama, and I've heard with a number of our saints who have gone on to be with the Lord, as they, as they get older, I, I just want to be with the Lord. We'll be having the memorial service, by the way. Here's a, a strange way of announcing it in the middle of a sermon. We'll have the memorial service for our dear uh, late friend, Marv Poutsma, on January the 11th. Make a note of that. It'll be in the evening so people can work and still get there. It'll be held here at the church, and uh, we'll let everybody know about that. But Julie, his daughter, said this. She had told me this prior to his death. She told me this again after his death. And John, when I talked to him on the phone the other day, his son said the same thing. Those, those last, the last two years of his life, every time I talk to him, I want to go home and be with the Lord. I'm tired. I'm ready to go be with the Lord. Why is that? Because that's, that was his heart. His heart had been changed by God. He was a heavenly being. He wasn't of this present evil age. So that in ages have come, he says, so that in ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, he did all this and he sent his son for us. And then he tells us how in, in, in history, how that comes about, how we're united to Christ is by grace through faith in Christ. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. And we've already seen he's defined grace as God doing it. God's divine energy at work in us. By the way, let's, let's, let's stop a moment. What is that? When we talk about well, God did it. Well, first, he gave us the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Scriptures. From Genesis 3.15, with that inaugural proto-evangelium, that earliest gospel message of the seed promise, all the way through every covenantal ex ex expansion from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, and then to Christ. That seed promise just kept expanding like the acorn as it grows into this grand, huge tree. That's the revelation of God as it unfolds along his covenantal statements. So he gave us the revelation of it. But then he sends his spirit 
to draw us to Christ, to regenerate us, to give us a new heart, take away the heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh. And the Spirit, in doing that, puts in us faith and repentance, grace gifts. For right here, what does he say? Read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, what's this? Well, the, the Greekers say, well, it's a reference, the antecedent, back to grace and faith. It's not one or the other, it's both. By grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Sola gratia, it's all of God. If it's not all of God, it's not grace. And it's not salvation. Not a result of works. Here's the purpose of all this, so that no one may boast. It's to take away our boasting. Years ago, on Wednesday nights in the little church in Memphis, we, Carol and I did a youth, youth uh, group in, in my study. It was a large-sized study. We had two old Naga hide. If you don't know what a Naga is, you go look them up in the encyclopedia. They're ugly creatures. But uh, you, you, made, you made cheap furniture coverings out of Nagas, and you called them Naga hide. And uh, parents... Let your kids know that was a joke later and explain what I'm talking about. And, uh, and we sit around and we would have pizza every Wednesday night and uh, Cokes and stuff and cookies. And, and we would talk theology. And the assignment one week was for all the kids to go home and ask their parents to tell them if their parents were Christians, and we had some that were not. But if your parents are Christians, ask them to tell you about their conversion. Tell them about their faith in Christ. Some of you will remember I've told this story before. That was on Wednesday night. Friday morning, I get a phone call from a dear, sweet lady. She said, are you at the study at the church? I said, I am. She said, may I come by in five minutes? She lived in historic Evergreen District just across the... Uh, from North Parkway from us. And I said, sure, come on. So Carolyn came over and she sat down and she started crying. And she said, uh, Elizabeth came Wednesday night and said, uh, okay, here's my assignment that Nick gave us. Uh, I, I want you all to tell me about your conversion, your faith in Christ. And so Carolyn said, I proceeded. Well, I grew up in the church and when I was about 11 years old, I realized that I was a sinner and I, I decided to, that I needed Jesus. And so I, I asked Jesus to save me. I prayed a prayer and, and I, I believed in Jesus and said about that point, and she's still crying. She says, about that point, Elizabeth stopped me and said, Mama, do you know how many times you've said I? Every sentence, every phrase, every clause you've uttered, you said, I did this, and I did that, and I, I, I said, do you not believe God is the one that gave you consciousness of your sin? And she said, Nick, that was life-changing. I still believe I'm a Christian. I wasn't trusting myself. But the way I express it suggested that I didn't believe that God was the Savior, 
that I was really part and parcel of this process. And she said, I'm just a recipient. If I'm not just the recipient, then it's of works. And if it's of works, then it's not of grace. And I just wanted to thank you, she said. But she was broken over this. She said, how long have I been taking credit with all my eyes? And that was Paul's problem in Romans 7, right? You go through how many times the Apostle Paul uses the singular I. And how does that chapter end? Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he goes to chapter 8, and it's all of the Spirit. It's all of the Spirit. Everything he emphasizes in chapter 8 is the Spirit of God working him to will and to do his good pleasure. And that's where Paul lived always. God is the sole actor. But notice, it's not just in our life. Did you notice? So that in the ages to come, he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the resurrection. But before the resurrection, Paul ends with verse 10. And, you know, I've, I've chided you about this. Back in my day, we used to get those little memory packets of scripture verses. And eight and nine were always published on one little, one little piece of paper. For by grace you have been saved, dot, 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 not of works, lest any man should boast. But they never printed verse 10, but verse 10 is right there with it, isn't it? And verse 10 is about not only being justified by grace through faith, you have been saved. We're right with God. But then it's also about sanctification. Is it not? For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared. Notice it's we're his workmanship. He's at work in us. That's, Paul says it a different way in Philippians 2, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 12, verse 13. For it's God who's at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. That's what Paul's saying right here. Just a little different wording. He says we're his workmanship. Created. Created by whom? By God in Christ Jesus for good works, which, well, how do we know what to do? God prepared them for us. He gave them to us. He tells us what they are. We wouldn't know otherwise. We'd be like the blind groping in the darkness. But for God giving us the work to do so that, and by the way, when did he do all this? Beforehand. He's looking back to Ephesians chapter 1 again, isn't he? He did this beforehand. All this has been scoped out for us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? That you, if you're in Christ Jesus, if you've been saved by the grace of God, you can say definitively, without apology, without any concern of being contradicted ever, that God has loved you from eternity, before you were even a twinkle but while you were known by God in his magnificent, infinite, eternal mind. Beforehand, he prepared these things. For what purpose? So that we would walk in them. It's our sanctification. Everything's of grace. From start to finish. God must be the sole actor because we're dead. 
And by the way, let's not ever forget that while God makes us alive, we're still totally dependent on him. I hope you never grow weary, covenant folks, of my reference back to 2 Samuel 9. After David remembers the covenant, and after David calls for Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is lame in both his feet. David says, not a problem, I'll get him. And he sends, as it were, the Holy Spirit to get him, and he brings him to him. And he tells him, don't fear, there's reconciliation, peace between the the two parties. Then he says, and by the way, you're going to eat at my table always. Just like one of my sons you're going to eat at my table. And over and over, Mephibosheth had to be brought to the table. Why? Three times we're told in that chapter. And the chapter concludes with those words, for he was lame in both his feet. See, that didn't change. Our our struggle with sin, though we're made alive in Christ, though we're saved, justified, sanctified, adopted, we will always in this life struggle with sin. That's the reason Luther had his simultaneously saint and sinner because he knew the struggle with sin just as the apostle Paul knew the struggle with sin that's the reason the apostle Paul over and over says we got to mortify the flesh we got to keep it we got to kill it we got to keep it under control we've got to be enlivened we got to be vivified we got to be brought to life so we got to Put off these bad things. We've got to put on these things. How can we do that? Because it's the Holy Spirit who's at work in us to willing to do these good things and to do them and to hate the bad things. So with Mephibosheth, we remain lame in both of our feet. It must have been worse than that for Mephibosheth if you think about it when you read through those chapters. Because when he's abandoned by his servant Ziba, David comes back to find him with his fingernails grown out, his beard grown out, he's unkempt. He apparently couldn't do anything for himself. David said to him, realizing that Ziba had lied about him, says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. That's what he did all the days of his life, and that's what our covenant-keeping God does for us all the days of our life. That's the grace of God. He takes care of us. And when we can't, he can. When we're faithless, Paul says, he is faithful. That's sola gratia. Aren't you glad that it's, it's all on God's big shoulders? He can do it for us. And he loves us so much that he will. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this this wonderful day to remember the scripture you gave us, the source of how we know Jesus, and for tonight to be reminded of how wonderful and full and complete your grace is. By grace alone, we're saved and kept 
for that day, the resurrection, when every, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will be raised to newness of life. Our old bodies, though decaying in this life or perhaps decaying in the grave, will be raised to a glorified state to enjoy the new heavens and new earth forever. That's grace. And we love your grace. And thank you for it. And for Christ for procuring it for us. And for your spirit for applying it to us. We pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.